Hey, this is Rob. I just want to take 30 seconds and thank the folks at Twilio, T-W-I-L-I-O.com for sponsoring this week's This Developer's Life. If you need voice or SMS capabilities in your application, check out Twilio. We've also received sponsorship from Umbraco, U-M-B-R-A-C-O, a content management system that runs on Microsoft's.NET platform. And if you want to check them out, they're at umbraco.org. Many, many thanks to our sponsors who are bringing this show to you today. Speaking of the show, let's get on with it. Developers, we get a lot of advice, read stuff on blogs, on Twitter. One of the things you read a lot is don't mess with success or put another way, don't reinvent the wheel. The pressure to conform is pretty overwhelming and it's because the code that we write, well, it shouldn't be volatile, it should be predictable, it should be straightforward and understandable. And if you act like a maverick and write something that's not understandable, then you're not a good coder. So you might be thinking, why am I listening to this music now in the background? Well, it's because these guys have the audacity to mess with success. So consider the song you're listening to. It's Bjork mashed together with The Cure, two songs that are wonderful, amazing on their own. Who in their right mind would ever have thought to put them together? But as you're listening, you might be able to sense that the two of those things put together actually create a nicer song. It's almost like the song is its own thing, it's like it should have always been. I think it's an amazing track. Now, believe it or not, there are a few folks who actually have left comments with myself and Scott saying, you know, I like the podcast, but I don't like the music. And if you're one of those people, then this probably isn't going to be one of your favorite episodes. But the music that you're listening to is actually underscoring a point that I'm trying to make with this show, which is that the DJs that do these mashups did miss with success. They did reinvent the wheel. And in this case, they took two very popular artists, Bjork and The Cure, and two very popular songs of theirs, mixed it together into a whole new song. That takes a bit of daring. You don't mess with songs like that. Well, it takes more than daring. It takes audacity, a lot of hubris mixed with a little bit of ignorance, and you have audacity. Sometimes it just works. Sometimes you just have to rock the boat. You never really know what's going to happen when you do. You could end up with something awesome. That is the theme of this week's This Developer's Life, Audacity. Three storytellers today. I think you'll know each one of them. The first one is John Resig, the inventor of jQuery. What in the world was he thinking? There was tons of JavaScript libraries out there. How did we end up with jQuery? The next storyteller we have today is Alex Payne 
developer from Twitter, created quite a splash many times when he was at Twitter and then when he recently left. He tells us his story. And finally, we talk to Miguel de Ecaza, the leader of the GNOME project at Novell, creator of Mono and many other things, talks about what it takes to clone and reinvent an entire framework in pursuit of a dream. There are a large number of developers, it seems to me, that are just not content and may just never be content with the tools that they have. Um, I'm probably one of those developers. I've, the question's been posed to me before, if jQuery didn't exist, what library would you use? And I would just simply have to say, I would write my own again from scratch. <laughs> like, I wouldn't switch to another library because, that, that, I mean, that's who I am. Like, I like the tools that I build. That's John Resig, the creator of jQuery. It's a JavaScript library that's used basically everywhere. John's one of those internet famous people who doesn't really act like he's famous. You know, he gives talks, he does his thing, he mostly writes code. The gravity of what he's done with jQuery doesn't really come through when you talk to him. He's the inventor of this thing, jQuery. It's huge. Like 40% of the sites on the internet use his library. Google uses it. Microsoft contributes code to it. And we've effectively said uncle with our own Ajax framework. And we use jQuery. We think it's awesome because it was, uh, in a word, better. And there were, but there were plenty of frameworks out there. There were lots of good frameworks. Prototype was already out there, Scriptaculous. Why would John write his own again from scratch? And he did say he was just one of those developers, but it takes a lot more than just discontent to decide to create your own JavaScript library. I think it takes a bit of hubris, a little audacity, and a heavy dose of moxie. Well, I mean, obviously, I think for any developer, they want to find the tool that is going to make their job the easiest it can possibly be. Uh, I don't think any developer really wants to sit down and you know just completely write something from scratch. Uh, because if they can find something that meets their needs from the start, then you know, it saves them time all around. Naturally, the, the problem comes that you know people can be, especially developers, can be phenomenally picky about what tools they want and what works exactly right for them. Um, in the case of in the case of jQuery, like back in you know 2005 or so, I was building a number of different web applications. They were uh, of various complexity. The, the problem that I saw was that the existing APIs, especially at the time of uh, uh, Prototype, Prototype was very popular, uh, but at the same time, it was the best API that existed. It was better than DOM for certain. That API in and of itself did not help me to make my code simpler in a way that I wanted. Uh, I, I wanted to go even simpler still. And I also wanted to reduce the amount of cross-browser issues I had to deal with. 
So those two things combined sort of drove me to say, all right, well, I think it's probably time to start from scratch. I can obviously take some inspiration from from Prototype, from some of Dean Edwards' work. Um, from At the time, there was a library called MooFX that eventually got turned into Moo Tools. So I took a lot of inspiration from the different frameworks that existed. I took the parts that I liked, um, but at the same time, I kind of wrapped it all together in a cohesive API that I enjoyed and that I felt like could alleviate a lot of my personal stress. There, there was just a fundamental difference in philosophy between that library and what I wanted to create. Uh, they had a certain elegance to their code, which massively inspired me. And I think it, I, 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 don't, I, I don't think it can be understated, or no, I don't think it'd be overstated, I should say, uh, just the importance of prototype in this generation of web developers. Because what they did is they showed that you could create and write elegant JavaScript code that interacted with the DOM. I think Douglas Crockford showed us that you could create write elegant JavaScript, but it wasn't until Sam Stevenson wrote Prototype that, you, that I think we really saw that you could write elegant JavaScript that actually interacted with a web page. And that was, I think, just a, a, you know, a huge uh, breakthrough. So while the internals of Prototype absolutely inspired me, at, at, the, at the higher level, the higher level API that they had, I needed the API to be much simpler. John wants it his way. He likes the other APIs out there, but there's always something missing, at least for him. As he reads the source for various projects and looks at demos out there, you know, that inspiration takes hold. John begins to see the foundation for building something great. In a way, it's like visiting an art museum. You know, you see as an artist the techniques that are used by the greats, but you use those techniques and what you learn from looking at that art to create your own masterpiece. Yeah, I think that's a good analogy. Uh, yeah, learning a new uh, painting technique, you know, seeing something done with, let's say, oil painting that you hadn't seen before. Uh, presumably, for example, if you went and saw, you know, uh, like a Jackson Pollock and see what he did with a, you know, drip painting, um, you would, would probably go back and uh, uh, decide to do some different things, playing around with textures and uh, seeing how paint dries and things of that nature. So, yeah, absolutely. There, I mean, there's, uh, there's absolutely a lot of inspiration to be taken. John's a humble guy. He won't blow his own horn. But, you know, it's clear that you can't go against popular wisdom. Write your own JavaScript library from scratch if you don't have just a little bit of hubris. Or at least a strong belief in your skill set. John's code powers an enormous amount of websites. I mean, he's got to feel like a badass now, doesn't he? It certainly depends upon the personality, uh, to be sure. So, I mean, the thing is, is that, like, there are a large number of developers, it seems to me, that are just not content and may just never be content with the tools that they have. Um, I'm probably one of those developers. I've, the question's been posed to me before, if jQuery didn't exist, what library would you use? And I would just simply have to say I would write my own again from scratch. <laughs> like, I wouldn't switch to another library because, that, that, I mean, that's who I am. Like, I like the tools that I build. Um, so, I mean, the thing is, uh, going back to your question of, you know, like, when do you 
you know, realize or, or, you know, when, when you get sort of that, that cockiness, it took me years to feel confidence in my JavaScript code. That was only through significant amounts of trial and error. There's a lot of work I feel that has to go into becoming at least a somewhat competent JavaScript developer, especially in relation to doing cross-browser development. Most of that, ex- uh, that knowledge can only be learned through experience. And it isn't taught in anywhere. It's not, you can't just pick up a book on uh, the weird browser bugs that exist. Um, most of the time, you just have to learn them the painful way of finding them, then fixing them. John's got drive, just a dash of ego, which, as you can hear for yourself, is not really arrogance, and clearly some amazing skills. It takes more than this, though, to swim upstream successfully. What about luck? Are there other jQueries out there that didn't get the breaks that he did? Is jQuery the result of stars aligning just so behind John's skills and ego and general discontent? I asked him his thoughts on that next. Almost definitely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, like I said, I've, I've seen a number of other frameworks spring up over the years. Um, and, but none of them really caught, caught on in a significant way. So I think one of the fatal mistakes that developers make um, when they're working on a new library, especially a new set of tools, is that they don't get other developers involved early enough. I mean, obviously, you should first build something that works for you. I mean, but, but at the same time, once you have something that works for you, you should immediately stop and release. and then get feedback from the general community and start to iterate. I started to chat with friends while I was working on it. You know, I started to show them some of the code I had written, some of the API, you know, they gave some feedback. Um, but I didn't necessarily, like I, I didn't want to put up a website and announce it until I felt good. It's kind of funny. Like I ran across uh, a notepad of mine the other day. I actually interviewed for a position at Yahoo back in the fall of 2005. And I have written on my notepad, I said, um, like I had written down things that I wanted to mention in an interview to bring up. And one of the things said, uh, talk about JSelect. And JSelect was my early term for jQuery uh, before it became jQuery. I don't remember if I brought it up in the interview or not, um, but I just thought that was kind of amusing. I did not get the job. Maybe I'm the only person to find that amazing, but just in case you missed it. I actually interviewed for a position at Yahoo. I did not get the job. (laughs) Certainly interview loops are more than just technology gauntlets, but they're also places to find out whether a programmer 
has personal skills, whether they can interact with a team. Certainly in this case, it's Yahoo's loss. But he was driven. He was, he was discontent. He was ready to make change. Isn't that what a company wants in an employee? They want someone who, who won't just let the frog be boiled quickly. They're a frog who's being thrown into a hot pot and they don't like it and they're going to make change. But sometimes you push too hard, you don't fit. But isn't real leadership taking the hard decision, making the hard choices, and pushing back against the status quo, even when all the odds are stacked against you? Now, I don't care how good you are, but when you're building code that other developers are going to use, frameworks rather than applications, you're probably going to come up against your own limitations as a developer. Now, John is clearly a smart guy. But when someone makes a big maneuver, big audacious maneuver, you have to ask yourself, was this too much? Was this too audacious? Did I just dig myself a hole? Almost all the time, it doesn't make sense to write you know, a framework from scratch. You know, there's a phenomenal amount of code in, let's say, you know, Rails or Django or even, even jQuery at this point that attempting to replicate would just be an exercise of frustration. I think developers sometimes kind of lose themselves and don't think as pragmatically as they should. And that you have, yeah, at the end of the day, you have to ship. And if you spend all your time, you know, refactor refactoring a framework, or even building tools to help make a process simpler. And, 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 and at the end of that, you just you don't have anything to ship. You know, then there's really not much of a point. In that regard, um, I, I, at least in my personal development, I try to be you know very exact. Like you know, if I, I try to look at the problems that I'm trying to tackle, and I try not to overextend myself. If if you know if I'm just converting some lines in a text file, sometimes I'll just do it by hand because it's going to be faster than writing, you know, the multi-line regex that it'll take to uh, parse it all. Um, so, I mean, yeah, so it, it's, I think, at the end of the day, you have to be, you have to be smart about it. You can read more about John, his programming style, and his efforts on jQuery on his blog at ejohn.org. You can read more about jQuery at jQuery.org. Many thanks to John for his time. Everyone knows what Twitter is. It's that constant stream of noise and voices bleeping at you throughout your day. When Twitter launched, it was a good idea right off the bat. And most of the people I know had Twitter accounts within a week, possibly two. I remember when I signed up for Twitter, it was at Mix, and I wanted to know where people were, and Twitter was the obvious answer to that problem. And to say that Twitter grew amazingly fast is an understatement.
Everybody's aware of Twitter's growth problems, so I don't need to go into that here. But imagine that you are the development lead for the Twitter API, the thing that all third-party Twitter clients actually talk to. That's a pretty high-profile job at probably one of the most visible tech companies outside of Facebook on the planet. It takes a little bit of nerve to walk away from that, and that is precisely what our next storyteller did. We talked to Alex Payne about Audacity. Not only the audacity to leave Twitter, but to also start a new company that is, of all things, going to reinvent an industry that has been around since, well, I guess industry began. A bold maneuver. It's two bold maneuvers. Let's get to it. With Bank Simple, it's it's basically let's let's go out and fix banking. I mean, that's that's it's kind of nuts when you think about it. Um, our our creative director is fond of saying that. There's there's something kind of punk rock about starting a bank because it seems really fundamental. It's like it's like a hospital or a school or, or so, you know something in your community that seems like this this bedrock that's just always been there. You know you don't really think about somebody actually going out and starting it. So the the idea of you know going and, and planting this seed yourself is is weird. Yep, I'm gonna have to agree with you there, Alex. Now I was around in the dot com boom. Turn of the millennium, I was doing my thing, surrounded by startups that were going to change the world. Not a single one of them ever tried to reinvent banking. You got to remember, back then, companies, marketers, salespeople, all the people in the tech industry were fairly full of themselves, foolhardy, precocious, ridiculously brash, among other things. But not a single one of them said, I'm going to reinvent banking. Here we are. Alex is going to take that on. But to me, that is not the most interesting part of his story. It's that he left Twitter to do it. He had a key position there. He was making a massive difference in people's lives. And he left that. That in itself is an amazingly brash maneuver. But then he left it to go reinvent banking. Who does this kind of thing? An up-and-coming company doesn't stay up-and-coming forever, right? I mean, at a certain point, tiny little startups grow into you know if if not big established companies at least companies that are heading in that direction and my my sense is that the people who really love being in the earliest stages of a startup just aren't cut out for big company life i i think it, in a way it's something that that i might end up chasing throughout my career is that that first crazy couple of years of a new business and just doing that over and over again, which sounds exhausting, but anything else isn't motivational for me. It's a different kind of exhausting. I, I think it's it's the grind of figuring out the na- navigating the politics, navigating the organizational structure. There, that that stuff isn't appealing to me. I, I, I think so, some people thrive on it, and some people thrive on coming into a big organization and making it more effective and making it their own and um, they they like the the support that comes with that, and, and I, in, in some ways, I kind of wish that that was my thing because I think it would be a lot easier, you know. It's there, there's there's more of those jobs out there, um, but it just doesn't it doesn't have the same draw, you know. We're all gonna come into the office in ratty jeans and t-shirts, you know, the sort or the sort of like Mark Zuckerberg, you know, flip flops and sweatpants look that everyone is talking about now, um, but then you know, like we're, we're going to work 20 hour days and kill ourselves to, to ship a product. So it's, 
it's very it's very weird like people are simultaneously very low-key about many aspects of their life but then totally driven when it comes to to work working at a startup is really addicting and i've worked at a number myself the unfortunate part is after a while you kind of have to make a choice because there's really only two ways you can go as a startup matures either you start making money and go out and hire a ceo and a coo and a bunch of other c-level type executives and then quickly you lose the flip-flops and the hoodie and then life around the office becomes just a little bit more conservative as you try and please investors and clients. Or you struggle to make money. People come up with ideas of things you can change and things you can do. And next thing you know, you're thrashing 20 hours a day into the night, burning yourself out. And well, for some people, both of those paths lead straight to the front door. Before I, I worked at Twitter, uh, I, I worked for uh, an information security consultancy in the D.C. area. And it was a really fascinating place to work. The, the work they did was, was really high impact. And basically the, the mandate that they got was like some other agency or military branch wasn't able to do the job that, that we're asking you guys to do. So however you want to do it, whatever technologies you want to use, whatever development methodology, the, the customer never cared. It was just like results. That, that was the only thing that mattered. And when I joined, there were a bunch of guys who'd been working together there for a while and the, the team was growing and they, they kept very much the same attitude. It's just like, let's bring in talented people on however they want to work as long as they get results. That, that's great. And I, I was in this environment for several years. Um, it was really demanding, um, but, but really fulfilling. And one day, one of the guys who'd, who'd been there for a good long while, and, and to me just sort of seemed like, like a bedrock of, of this group, um, left. And it, it was it was kind of a big shakeup because in, in that culture, like people just didn't leave. It was something that, you know, the, the, the guy who hired me for that job is still there and he loves it and he's still recruiting other people. Um, and, uh, you know, he's just he, he's, he's a lifer. Um, so at the time, I had a, I had a really hard time understanding why this guy wanted to walk away from what to me at the time seemed like the the perfect job like the the work was really interesting total freedom um pay was reasonably good they 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 definitely took care of us um and now that i've kind of you know i for 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 me being lower down the totem pole there it wasn't it wasn't a super high stress job. Like the, the, there were stressful periods, but I didn't feel like the weight of the world was on my shoulders there. Cause uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, the work that I was doing was really just making it easier for, for other people to do their, their jobs. I, I was kind of, I guess like a, like a tools developer in, in, in a way. Um, and now that I've, I've had a little bit more experience I, I kind of I kind of get it a, a little bit more. Being being the key person on a team is great. It's really nice to feel 
um, necessary, but it's also exhausting. I, I don't want to sort of overstate my how, yeah, how hard I work. Basically, I mean, there 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 were uh, like our, our our key operations guy at at Twitter killed himself for for you know two three years straight i mean just craziness um and i you know i i put a lot of work in but nothing nothing quite like that um i definitely pushed back when i felt like it was too much that the center of the, the tech world is in the Bay Area. And I know that moving here, being here, it disconnects me from, from that. Um, and that making a long-term commitment to being here is in some ways probably a career-limiting decision. And it means that I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to make my own fun, you know? Like, I'm, I'm you know, it, if, if I want to find a really fulfilling job here in Portland after uh, I'm done with Bank Simple, I'm probably going to have to start another company. But I think that's also something that I've kind of accepted. It, you know, it's it's the tech industry for a reason, right? There's there's a system, there's a process there from the the hub of venture capitalists through the the people who float from company to company, um, turning them from startups into big businesses. Um, there, you know, there's kind of a, a hamster wheel that, that that people run. So, yeah, it might be harder to find work outside of that, but I think at least for me, the, the, the work I'm going to find is going to be more fulfilling. So it's, it's only career limiting in the kind of like broadest, broadest sense. It's pretty easy to listen to Alex's story and think he's just a malcontent. He probably wouldn't get the job at Yahoo either. He just can't sit still for any period of time. Or we could be positive and look at Alex and say, he's a specialist. He's a builder. He likes to get in there and get dirty and work himself to the bone to get an idea off the ground. As a founder of a tech startup, you need people like Alex and John. So coming back to Alex's story, he has decided to leave Twitter, pretty bold maneuver in and of itself, because Twitter has basically outgrown him. What he needs is a challenge, the challenge of the build. And he's decided to take on probably one of the most monumental tech challenges you can take on, reinventing banking. As he and Scott were talking, Scott asked him point blank, doesn't that take just a little bit of hubris to think you can pull that off? Yeah, in 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 a way, it is. Um, I, I've been in these kind of tiny growing startup environments several times and every time i've i've gone in search of a new one i've found a slightly even crazier idea to pursue the question is what what's your motivation right i think it would be hubris to say you know i'm smarter than everyone else so i think that i can do better than the established players like you know if, if our mission was we're going to be bigger than bank of america who, you know, I, the, the other day I heard if something like, you know, a trillion dollars tied up, you know, it's like like a, a, a sizable percentage of the of the U.S. economy is like tied up in, in Bank of America. If, if that was our goal, that that would be that would be hubritical. Um, in in our case, it's, you know, 
we, we want to start the equivalent of a small to medium sized bank that just does really well by its customers and pushes banking technology forward. And, and that hopefully is a more modest goal. I think, I think the, the new idea is that for the most part, banking should be this kind of automated service. It should be this, this like app that you install and you put your money in the app and it just does the right thing for you. That's sort of, that's, that's, that's the new idea. Ideally, it's the, you know, you hand it to the bank and you get your 4%. You know, you're not going to get 4% in this, in this economy. That's not going to happen. Even, even ING Direct or Ally isn't going to give you 4%. Um, you know, maybe you could play the market and, and get lucky. Um, and, and realistically, what we're building isn't for people who have millions of dollars to invest. It's for, it's for, you know, sort of the average middle or upper middle class person where maybe they've got 20, 30 K tops, you know, they're, they're not quite at the point where they need a money manager. And maybe they're not even quite at the point where they want to take a significant portion of their assets and invest it. You know, they, they want that, that 20 K around in case their car gets totaled or, or, you know, that, that, that kind of thing there, we can, we can do the right thing with that money. You know, we can get them a decent interest rate. We can make sure that as their, you know, paychecks are coming in, it's moving over to savings and all that good stuff. You just, you, you don't have to think about it. That's, that's the way, that's the way I'd kind of like it to be. I'd like it to just, I mean, that, that's the simple part, right? It's just, you know, you, you put your money in, you don't think about it. Periodically you check in and then hopefully we have, you know, some good recommendations for you about how, how you could make even, even more of that. Alex knows he's a ground floor guy. And in listening to him talk about the opportunity he has with Bank Simple, you can't help but hear the excitement in his voice. And at the same time, you can't help but hear the pensive tone in his voice as he reflects back on his time at Twitter. For developers that like the startup life, this is a bit of a drawback, having to say goodbye to a place that you invested so much time and effort in. In late 2006, I started talking to the folks at Twitter when they were still this little side project of a company called um, uh, Obvious Corp that was supposed to be this kind of incubator for different um, different web startup ideas or web app ideas. And at the time, I, I thought, okay, you know, these guys are great. You know, Ev Williams started Blogger, really interesting person to, to work with. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll move out there. We'll work on Twitter for a few months. Then we'll work on some other projects. Um, I'll get to see a lot of variety. Um, and they were, you know, nice enough to, to move me out to the Bay Area. Um, but a couple of months after I arrived, it became really clear that we were never going to get to any of the other obvious corp stuff that the Twitter was it, um, which was a big, it was a big mental shift. It wasn't what I was expecting. You don't necessarily want to leave out of sheer anger or disappointment o over a job because you don't necessarily know that, that the next situation might be better. And you don't want to leave because someone else is dangling more money in front of you or something like that. Cause that, that's, that's usually a ruse, but that, that sense that I have to go do this other thing because it's the right thing to do for me personally, or maybe even I think it's the right thing to do in this kind of broader picture. 
I, th I think that's that's the perfect motivation for a change. You can check out what Alex is up to these days by heading over to banksimple.com where they keep a blog and they're accepting signups. And they recently closed a round of funding, so it looks like they are getting off the ground. In addition, if you want to read Alex's blog, it's up at alex.net. Except the E is spelled with a 3, AL3X.net. Many, many thanks to Alex for his time for this story. Break it down, break it down, break it down. When I think of audacious programmers, when I think of programmers that are just so powerful and out there that they could only be described as sassy, I think of my good friend Miguel de Acaza. Over 10 years ago now, he, along with Nat Friedman, founded a company that eventually re-implemented Microsoft's .NET development platform, except for Linux and Unix. It's an unbelievable story, and frankly, I just want to understand, did Miguel think he was getting in over his head? Let's let Miguel tell us. It was actually jealousy, a little bit of jealousy, uh, because we had been building a, a email client for about a year at that point. We've been writing an email client for Linux that we wanted to be very user-friendly, kind of took, take some ideas from, uh, from Outlook and uh, other email clients like that. And... We were building this in C, completely in C, uh, a little bit of C++ at some point. Uh, we were we were completely bought into the whole um, component model programming. And we were about a year into the development. And it had been very painful, very, very painful. Every memory, a corruption bug, every uh, double free, every allocation probably you could think of. you know. And we had about 12 people at that point. The team eventually grew up to be 17. But we had about 12 people at that point. And uh, it was painful. Machines back then in 2000 were not very fast, you know. Um, so there were a couple of problems like that. Machines were not very fast. Uh, we had a relatively large team of people working on the same code base, introducing different features. And uh, when Microsoft came out with C Sharp, we really liked what was there. It was very, properties were, you know, mapped beautifully with what we're doing, events, because we're doing GUI programming. So we raised a lot of uh, events in our applications. Uh, the manage model, the garbage collection, not having to manage your own memory and so on. And we were a little bit uh, jealous about that. At the time, although there were scripting languages in Linux, because it was a Linux application, we had Python, none of those things really worked or performed well at the time. So Python, scripting languages were really out of the question for this application. Remember, this is the year 2000, and we're building a desktop app with limited resources and, you know, on the target computers. So when Microsoft came up with .NET Framework, we felt a little bit jealous that Microsoft was getting this amazing technology. And we're still a little bit in prehistory building this thing. And uh, Java had a kind of a rough start with Linux. Uh, there, it's a very complicated story, but back in 2000, it was a, a fairly rough, it was a fairly rough start for Java. 
there was no, since we wanted to be on every Linux distribution, there were some requirements that everything that we built had to be open source and from the ground up. So we couldn't really take a dependency on a proprietary Java, right? So it had to be everything open source. So that's when we said, let's go build our own .NET implementation. For those of you who don't know who Miguel is, he started the GNOME project in 1997, making a free desktop environment for Linux. He's worked in Linux for years. He even created a spreadsheet program called Numeric. But he's most well-known as the creator of Mono. Mono is a clone, a, a re-implementation of the Microsoft.NET framework, except this time open source. It's a black box, meaning that they didn't look at the source code for .NET, but still, things that you write in .NET on Windows probably work on Linux under Mono. It's an amazing piece of technology. It took about a year. It took about a year to go from no code to have a full bootstrapping C-sharp compiler. And about another four months before we had our first GUI applications running on Linux. So it was relatively fast. And we were a team of about six people at that point. So it looked, it looks, it's, it's the opposite of, uh, of what Mirror says, that objects are closer than they appear. So it's exactly the opposite. Um, you know, you think that you believe that the objects are closer than they appear. Uh, they're actually further away. So we thought, we thought, you know, six months of this, we can use a Microsoft C-Shirt compiler. We'll just build the class libraries on the VM. And uh, how hard can a JIT be? You know, we'll we'll buy a couple of books and, and we'll build a JIT. And I think that, in fact, we built a JIT very quickly. Once we had the VM running, the VM took about six months. So we started in July. And by the end of, by December, we had a VM working. It was very primitive as it was an interpreter. We also had the C-Sharp compiler, on the other hand, on Windows bootstrapping. So it was able to compile itself on Windows. So we felt we were on the right track. Then... It took us about another three months to turn the interpreter into a very primitive JIT, or four months, very primitive JIT. But by, you know, when, when June rolled back, when June rolled back, and this was a year after the, the, the process started, we had a full system running. And, uh, and then it was, and then it was relatively simple. We were very excited. There was a, a lot of excitement in our community. Many people stepped up to help. And it just kept growing from that. And initially it was very simple. C-Sharp compiler, VM, core class libraries. We were not even building system XML. We figured that will come at some point in the future. And things just kind of got together. And it's been it's been like that uh, the whole time. It's kind of been driven by uh, by small successes all the time. You know, not big successes, but just tiny incremental successes. A year. Have you ever tried to write a compiler? I mean, I think I did in school, but you know, not a full-blown C-sharp compiler that can compile itself. Miguel and his team had never written one. It only took them a year. That's insane. It's brash. It's ridiculous. So I never wrote a compiler before other than, than an expression evaluator like you do in, in, in high school or, or, or in your first compiler class. So this was, a, this was a challenge, learning to build a compiler. And it was actually a lot of fun uh, to build compilers and jitters for a team that had never done that before. For those unaware, Miguel is saying JIT, J-I-T. This means just-in-time compilation. It's a feature of... The runtime, it means that you're going to take some interpreted bytecode and turn it into machine code just in time, on the fly. So I was, that was very, uh, you know, that was incredibly interesting. The, the other problem is that I'm notoriously bad at estimating. So maybe that had something to do with it. When we started our company, Zemian, in, uh, in 2000, uh, we got our first investment 
from friends and family. So we got Nat's parents gave us ten thousand dollars. Some friends gave us another ten thousand dollars. A friend that we met on IRC gave us sixty thousand dollars. And we said, "All right, we're a company now. We're serious now. And although we're Linux people, since we're a serious company, we're going to go to the to the micro center." store and buy everything that a serious company needs so we bought three things we bought a pc uh, with windows we bought a printer we need a laser printer to print documents and uh, we bought microsoft project and we spent the first night we spent the whole first night entering data into microsoft project uh, and we would take turns so now we'll enter the first part i would enter the second part we're working on nat's uh, apartment in cambridge and by the end of the night around 4 a.m we roughly had everything that we needed to build our email client evolution. And it included everything from uh, the time it was going to take us to send the software for shrink wrapping. This was back in the day where CDs still mattered. Uh, to, you know, print the CDs, uh, get office furniture, hire an assistant. Uh, this was in December, late December of 2000. No, 1999. So 1999, late December. And we entered absolutely everything we could think of. Uh, second round of financing, get a lawyer, uh, file copyrights, everything. And uh, IPO in June or something like that. But the idea was that we would be shipping the product in April. So it was something like five or six months after the uh, after we were entering the data. Four months. So we were ready to IPO in June. I mean, we were ready. We were ready. And, uh, you know, it was at 6 a.m. in the morning that Nat hits the recalc button. And Microsoft Projects come back, comes back and says, April 19. So April 19, we're going to ship Evolution. And it actually took, instead of uh, four months, it took two and a half years to build. So maybe, you know, maybe by building compilers and jitters and things like that, are, uh, it's just because I'm notoriously bad at estimating. <laughs> now, most people, myself included, would, would cringe. They think about slipping a due date on a project by two years. But most people wouldn't clone a framework just because they didn't like the existing choices. Just to write an email client. This is a big thing. Talk about audaciously bold maneuvers. Remember that their goal here was to ship an email client, not to reinvent.net. But how do you keep yourself motivated under circumstances where you've slipped the date on the original project by two years? You know, one time I met, I was, I was at some conference in, uh, in Switzerland. And... Uh, after dinner was over, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a conference of, uh, you know, technology people and business people, all kinds of other people. And, um, and after dinner was over, it was a long day of meetings. They said, there's this guy that came from the United States and he does great talks. You should really go there. And uh, I was sitting next to the princess of Sweden and, uh, you know, I was trying to talk her up and say, Hey, oh, what's your name? And stuff like that. And there was a handler there that would interrupt everything. So you couldn't really get to the princess without the handler in the middle. So, you know, I'm kind of disappointed at this point that I won't, you know, get to talk with the princess. And they say, well, there's a, there's this event here. Uh, this guy came from the United States. He's a great speaker. And I'm, I'm a little bit tired. I want to go home. But they said, you really need to go see this guy. Like, okay, let's go see this guy. And it turned out that he was the director of the Boston Philharmonic. Uh, and he had written a book with his wife about... Uh, about the art of possibility. So we go into this room and uh, here we see this, you know, director of the Boston Philharmonic uh, telling us to not, you know, to not worry about the future, to always look at the bright side. And he has these great examples and great stories of what he does with his students, uh, music students. And it's a fascinating story. So I leave that room thinking, 
I mean, this guy opened my eyes to a whole new world of uh, every time that something went wrong, he would look at the bright side. Like, for example, his flight had been canceled uh, to go to Switzerland. And he had two options. He could have stayed in Boston and said, couldn't make it. Or he could buy new tickets. So he would have to pay out of his pocket new tickets to get to Switzerland. And he figured, you know, there's a lot of people waiting for me. Uh, there's about 50 people that are waiting for me. So I'm just going to take this flight. And instead of resting, I'm going to go straight from the airport to this thing. So he had to go through three or four connections more uh, just to get to this meeting. Where he said, you know, I had an appointment and I figured... <laughs> I'm not going to just uh, sulk here and, and get depressed. So it kind of, it changed a lot the way that I saw the world. It was, you know, programmers tend to get, uh, you know, complaining and they complain about things not being perfect. Uh, you know, like things like first world problems on Twitter. And uh, and this guy, you know, he radiated uh, uh, joy for life. And uh, I've never seen somebody radiate so much joy for life like this guy. And I said, you know, I want to be like that guy. I want to be, um, you know, I want to be able to take on those things. Ever since then, I really haven't seen it, any of the problems. It has kind of blinded me to a lot of problems. So everybody, some, every time somebody says, you know, there's going to be a horrible patent here. Oracle is going to hate you or Microsoft's going to hate you or, you know, all, of, all kinds of excuses that people make. The reality is that they're all excuses. And you realize at some point that uh, that anybody, you know, we're programmers, we're, design, we're machines designed to find bugs in software, we're machines designed to look at the little uh, corner case of the off by one. We, we're perfectly tuned devices of complaining and finding problems. And, and kind of meeting this guy made me realize that although you, you're always going to have problems, you're going to have bugs and you're going to have all kinds of issues, you can always find solutions. And, uh, you know, for many years, every time somebody said, oh, we can't make that, my response was always, oh, that's a weekend hack. That's a couple of hours hack. Now, it doesn't have to be a full product. It doesn't have to be a full solution. But if you if you start thinking of things as these are weekend hacks, or yes, it can be done in, in you know, in a couple of hours over the weekend, eight hours. It doesn't have to be perfect, but you can kind of make some progress there. It, it, it helps you change a lot of the way you these things. Now, we still took us two years and a half to ship the product, but... Um, but I think that we, we, you know, we had a lot of fun during the process. Uh, we were never bummed out about something that was impossible to do. Uh, there were always challenges, but, you know, you always find a way. Seems like there's not much that will intimidate Miguel. But as we wrapped up the interview, I asked him, what's your next big project? What's the bold move are you going to tackle next? Turns out Miguel does get scared. My, my, my daughter. I think my daughter is my next big project. <laughs> When we took the baby home, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I, I don't know how I'm going to keep this running. I mean, I felt like, uh, I felt like, uh, you know, I mean, does it use battery? I mean, what do I, how do we, I, I don't know. I mean, if she starts crying, I, I'm not going to know what to do. But eventually, you know, we figure it out. We're very happy and, uh, and I'm very psyched about the baby. <laughs> I probably owe it to y'all, probably be locked by the fall, trying to hustle some bands, jack go with the push, feeling no remorse, feeling like my hand was forced, middle finger to the law, nigga, crimp on my ball, said the ladies, they love me, from the bleachers, they screaming, all the ballers is bouncing, they like the way I be leaning, all the rappers be hating, hope the trap 
that I'm making But all the hustles they love it Just to see one of us make it Came from the bottom of bottom To the top of the pot Nigga London, Japan And I'm straight up the block Like a running back Get it man, I'm straight up the block I can run it back Nigga, cause I'm straight with the rock this has been episode seven of This Developer's Life. And once again, I want to thank the folks at Twilio, T-W-I-L-I-O.com for helping us out with sponsorship today. If you need voice or SMS for your application, go check out Twilio at Twilio.com. And the good people at Umbraco, U-M-B-R-A-C-O.org, CMS system, content management system for the .NET platform. Without their support, we would not be able to bring you the show so many, many thanks from me to them. Once again, this has been This Developer's Life. My name is Rob Connery. And this is Scott Hanselman. Thank you so much for listening. 52 bars come out. Now you feel them now. 52 cars roll out. Remove ceiling in case 52 bars come out. Now you chilling with a boss. Vision cards, FC on the sleeve. At the 4040 Club ESPN on the screen. I play the grip for the jeans. Plus the slippers is clean. No chrome on the wheels. I'm a grown of. Could you brush it off for me?